Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've joined us this morning for worship, whether it be here in person or online. We do want to wish you a very happy 4th of July weekend, and we hope that it is a safe weekend and ends with everybody having all of their appendages and walking correctly and upright. So God bless you and be with you and keep you as we celebrate. Those glasses are fabulous. Sally, I cannot. You need to come up here and show everybody your wonderful fashion. Are you sure? <laughs> hey, well done, well done. Every once in a while, there are things that happen that are up here that only I get the privilege of seeing. And I looked out, and Sally Acton has the most fabulous 4th of July-themed glasses with stars on the side and the flag going across the front. So kudos for you. I like the fashion statement. As you can tell, the red, white, and blue theme is in full effect today. So thank you for that. But we do want to wish you a very happy 4th of July, um, and we, we pray that God will go with you throughout this holiday weekend. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer as we turn our attention now to the truth of his word. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your great love with which you've loved us, Lord, in the so many ways that that is manifested to us day in and day out. Lord, today as, as we talk about the freedom that comes in Christ, I pray that you would open hearts and minds, Lord, and that you would reveal to us the truth of what your freedom and what your grace really does within us. And Lord, that you would see what it is and what it isn't, and that you would draw us deeper into a relationship and deeper into obedience to you. God, speak to us now in these moments, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once again, it is the 4th of July weekend. If you didn't know, I don't know how you didn't know because we've been announcing it loud and proud all over neighborhoods across Seymour, Indiana and beyond. Uh, I'm pretty sure somewhere uh, a couple blocks of me about blew up the other night because it was going crazy. Right, Amber? Um, there was a serious party going on, and it was great, and we could hear it at our house. And so it's that time of year, right, where we celebrate the 4th of July, we celebrate uh, what it means to be a, an American. And when we think about that, one of the, the central virtues of, of the American ethos, if you will, is freedom. Right? That's, that's, the, that's one of the central components of what it means to be American, is to, to be free. If we, if we look at, consider a few of the defining literary works of American history, we see that freedom is extolled as being one of these highest of virtues and ideals. It is one of our most indomitable rights. And we can go back and forth all we want, depending on who's in office at time, about what freedoms are being trampled on or what's not. That's always going to happen. But the fact is, having been to a lot of third world and developing world countries, we even in the worst of times, we have a great many freedoms here and more freedoms than we don't have. And we, we, we have an incredible blessing of being in this nation. We are free. And I want to consider just a couple of things that, that we talk about that, that is, are presented to us as Americans on, on a regular basis that show how central freedom is to our identity. I mean, think for a moment with me about the Pledge of Allegiance, right? We know how that goes. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Liberty. 
with liberty as we come to the crescendo to conclude it. We've got liberty and hopefully justice for all. That's the ideals to which we ascribe, right? Liberty is a central part of our identity. We think even about uh, all the way back at the first 4th of July, the, the sons of liberty being this defining group that are, are fighting and leading to bring about our freedom. Then we think about the star-spangled banner. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. <coughs> Excuse me. Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Did you know that there are actually four verses to the Star-Spangled Banner? And that in all four verses, the concluding line, the defining line of the song, if you will, is, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Then we think about what has to be the seminal document that brought about the, the American identity, the one that we probably point to more than any, and that would be the Declaration of Independence. Right? The, the very starting point, the, the diving board, if you will, the jumping off point of our national identity is a Declaration of Freedom. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty, freedom, independence. It's all over the American ethos and identity. And so many of our, our if you will, civil disagreements and civil discord that we have centers around the way that we access and express that freedom. How far does that freedom really go? What are the limits of that freedom? And I'll be honest to you, I am beyond grateful for the freedom afforded to me as a citizen of these United States of America. But even as Americans, in the best of times... Freedom does not mean a completely unhindered ability to do whatever one wants, whenever one desires, without consequence. Free freedom isn't just some, some nebulous concept where we all just live in our own construct of right and wrong and do what we want, when we want, how we want, with we want, to who we want. There, there are some reasonable expectations and boundaries, if you will, that have to be placed on freedom in order for us all to have freedom. There's a certain, truly, in order for freedom to, to function appropriately, there has to be a certain level of self-regulation that we, that we apply to protect ourselves and others. Freedom. You know what? Freedom is not only a central concept in the ethos of the American identity, but we're not, we're not here to talk about Americanism and the American idea this morning. We're here to talk about our identity as citizens within the kingdom of God. And the truth is that freedom is also a central concept within the construct of the kingdom of God. 
But once again, the freedom afforded to us by the work and person of Jesus Christ is not completely unfettered and unhinged. Our freedom must be understood and activated in alignment with the truth of God's word. This is the ultimate authority for life and godliness, yes? It has all, the Bible tells us that in Peter, that this book, through all of its promises, and that includes its commandments, has all that we need to live a godly life. Which means that even in the context of our freedom as Americans, this should be over and above all things what dictates and determines what that freedom looks like and how we exercise it in a reasonable and acceptable way in the sight of God. Our freedom must be understood and aligned in light of God's word. And Paul, here in Romans chapter 6, talks about what our freedom should look like and what it should not look like. What it does mean and what it doesn't. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 1. Paul says this, Romans 6, starting in verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery or power over him. The death he died, he died to to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. And do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then shall, what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. 
Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, and benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the, the idea of freedom and the question of freedom is really the, the central theme of this passage. It's what Paul, Paul continues to ask questions as he goes through, throughout the text. And he, he asks them rhetorically, but then he answers them. And as he goes through these questions, he lays out for us some ideas of what our freedom should look like in Christ. The first thing that Paul lays out for us as we start chapter 6 is this, that God's grace provides freedom from sin, not license to sin. God's grace provides freedom from sin, not license to sin. See, that, that actually does turn our concept of freedom on its head, doesn't it? Because it's not just an unhindered, I do what I want, woo, I can party because Christ has already saved me from that. Which is how we often behave. That's the way that we, we especially when we're caught in sin, I, I see this a lot. And I'll be honest, I've done it. Like someone confronts you and you're like, well, I've been saved by the grace of God. You see it actually in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? The guy goes and gets baptized and he comes out and he says, ain't nobody, man or God, got nothing on me, boys. And, and the other character says, well, you're going to find that the state of Mississippi is a little bit more discerning. You know, we, we see it, and I see it in, in tattoos, you know, no one can judge me but God. That's not true. Coming to Christ does not mean a, a free-for-all, do what you want, there are no consequences. F freedom is never truly an unhindered, laissez-faire, do what you want. There are always reasonable restrictions on it, and for us as followers of Christ, God's grace provides freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. It's not just a license to do what you want without fear of repercussion. Sure, that's in there. God's, God's taking care of the cost of our sins. But that doesn't mean we go hog wild. But that has been the question throughout history. If God's grace does cover all of our sins, does that mean we just don't worry about it and do what we want? And, and even worse than that, it, it, it manifests itself in even more nefarious ways. The question that Paul is asking here at the beginning of chapter 6 is this, is if our sin serves to reveal the greatness and goodness of God, does that mean our sin is actually a good thing? If our sin serves to, to, to manifest and make plain the forgiveness and the greatness of God's grace, would it not then benefit the world for us to sin away and let them see how great God's grace truly can be? It's the question that, that Paul asks here. It's the question that Paul will continue to, to evaluate in light of the life-altering truth that he's presented thus far. You know, we just talked about justification for all, that we have been made right, that we have been declared right. And Paul has talked over and over again that our salvation does not come by works of the law. Paul actually is bringing together all of the concepts that he's talked about in Romans thus far, and he's bringing it to what seems like a logical conclusion or could be a logical conclusion, and then combating that. 
It's actually an accusation that, that, that Paul has been, been asked before. The, the, the accusation has been made that if we look back in chapter 3, verse 8, that, that they are using or teaching that we can do evil that good may result. And so Paul is laying out the logic that gets them there. Well, let, let's think about it for a second. What, what has Paul said thus far? That all are sinners. All are sinners. None are righteous, not one, right? That no sinner can earn salvation through right action. No one is made just. No one is justified. No one is made right. No one is saved in their own strength and power. Three, that divine regulations, rather than helping us get it right, shout how hopelessly good we are at getting it wrong. Four, that the greater the sin, the greater the allocation of the gift of God's grace. That does make sense then to come to the conclusion that if all of these things are true, I'm hopelessly sinful, I can't earn salvation, I cannot live up to God's standards, and the greater the sin, the greater people can see God's grace. Let's just get our sin on and show just how great God can be. Why try to restrict myself? In fact, by doing that, all I'm doing is limiting how great God's grace can be manifest to the world. Let's go and get crazy. It sounds crazy to us, doesn't it? Like, if you think about that, as I say it, it sounds as foolish as you looking at me right now indicates that it sounds. But here's the thing. It's actually been taught historically. Have you ever heard of, of a, a Russian monk named Rasputin? Rasputin. Did you know that Rasputin of Anastasia fame was actually a real person historically? He actually lived, and, and, and he, was, he, he was known as a mystic monk, a mystic and a monk, and, and he served as the royal, the lead royal advisor for the Romanov family in Russia from 1906 to 1916. And Rasputin taught that salvation came through continued experiences of sin and repentance. He taught that since greater forgiveness is required for greater sin, it is the duty and responsibility of the followers of God to sin early, often, and big in order to make the most of God's salvific work and to show his amazing grace. He taught that it was actually irresponsible to try to do it on our own, that we should just unencumber our lives and go crazy because that that was actually being responsible with the gift of God's grace and salvation. If I may, the academic evaluation of this would be this. That's just stupid. <laughs> and Paul, Paul asked the question, right? Right at the beginning. What shall we say then? What shall we conclude in all that we've just seen? Shall we go on sinning so that grace...